People of the world, welcome back to Send It Rising. This is the, I want to say, 406th episode of the show. You know what someone is all about when they get a little bit flustered, when life gets a little bit tricky. Backstage, my guest and I today had a little bit of a technical snafu, and we could have said, I don't want to do the show anymore, but we didn't. That's stick to ladies and gentlemen. You know, you know what you need for stick to You need uh, the perseverance to write, let's say, many books, which our guest has uh, done on the show today. He's worked with Fortune 50 companies. Uh, he's a conference speaker, 22 years of experience in the is- industry. He grew and sold his own company. Currently is the owner of Cascade. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Sean Campbell. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's good to have you, man. So tons to talk about. We could talk about the books first. We could talk about your current, you know, ownership of this company. Which would you rather start with? Well, briefly on the books, Uh, you know, because that was um, that was a slightly earlier stage in my career. But um, I will I will tell you that it was a a fantastic experience to go through. Um, It's also uh, Especially if you're working with a book publisher, that's that's the side of the relationship you don't like as much. I mean, the number of like edits and loops and whatever you go through is only so much fun. Um, I did have the pleasure of working with some co-authors on a couple of the books. Um, one of them, I actually led a team of eight authors, uh, which was kind of like herding cats. That was kind of interesting. Uh, and so, yeah, it was, it was a good experience. But like, if nobody's ever done that before. Or, attempted it. I mean, people say all the time, you've got at least one book in you. Probably people have more than just at least one. Uh, it's a good experience to learn how to write better and get a lot of editing help and, and all those kinds of things. But yeah, I mean, but 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 happy to talk about the current company too. I mean, we um, Cascade Insights has been around since 2006 and uh, that's my second company. I had a company that I grew and sold before that. And um, the organization now is about 30 people. And we do mostly work with uh, the B2B technology side of the industry. Um, so, you know, guys like Amazon and Google and Microsoft and smaller guys too, but all on the B2B side. So business to business software and how that's done. And we do a lot of market research services and, and some marketing services for them too. That's beautiful. So the first book that you wrote, did you have imposter syndrome when you were starting to write it? Um, maybe imposter syndrome as a writer. And, and maybe that was accurate back then. I mean, like, you know, in the sense that writing, um, you know, I, I well, th- this, I'll get to that. But, like, let me say something about people, I think, in general, that I think is very relevant to the imposter syndrome thing is, like, I have found that um, people are either born verbal or they're born writers. I find it very, very rare to find somebody who's born with both skill sets. Um some of that, I think, is just amplification over time. If you're very good at verbal, people constantly keep giving you opportunities to be better at verbal, and before you know it, you haven't done much with your writing. And if you're not very good at verbal, you know, before you know it, you're trying to write really long emails to convince your peers to do things, and you get very good at that. Uh, and and it's very odd to find yourself in the position of having to get better at both. But one of the places where you kind of have to do that, I think, is if you're a business owner. Because, uh, and especially if the company's small, like we're 30 people now, but there were times when we were smaller and you end up not only having to be chief salesperson, but you also have to be very good at, you know, maybe it's writing marketing copy or you have to be very good at kind of writing contracts or writing proposals. And um, if there was an imposter syndrome thing, it was like me, write a book, 
uh, emphasis, write a book. Uh, and, and, and things have changed. I mean, I, 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 I wouldn't say I don't have things to learn on writing, but you know, it's nothing to be embarrassed about anymore, like 22 years later. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe we can blame the educational system or me changing schools a lot when I was a kid, but at the end of the day, you can, you can really only blame yourself, right? I never really got that good at writing when I was younger. And, um, yeah, if there was anything, that's, that's where it was. Um, because it's, it, it really shines a light on your written communication. And one, one side note on that, one of the things somebody said to me after we were about a year into COVID, um, and everybody was working from home then there was, there was no, I mean, out in industries where you could, um, which tech is definitely one of them. And, um, I was talking to him about, Hey, you know, it must be kind of interesting. You know, you don't have all that verbal interplay and all that ability to kind of argue your point verbally. And he quipped to me, he said, yeah, I didn't realize how dumb some of my colleagues were until they were forced to write everything to me. Uh, and so <laughs> I said, oh, that's kind of interesting. I mean, it's a legit comment though, right? Because like when you go hybrid and remote, you don't get to talk through everything the way you used to, right? You know, you have to write a cogent email to even maybe get people to show up to a meeting. And so all of a sudden you have all of these people that like probably didn't really know how to write a complete sentence or a coherent one. And now their primary means of communication starts with the written word. So um, anyway, it's a long way of saying, I, if you think you angle toward one or the other, you better get good at both, or at least it's going to be a big benefit to you if you do. Oh, hundred percent. So the use of the word cogent, I'm always a fan of that. And then, <laughs> and then how, to what degree would you say in your youth changing schools added to your toughness and grittiness? Uh, immensely i mean i um i haven't really had anybody ask me that directly so much so i i probably have to kind of think it out a bit but i mean um i mean i moved um i never can count them but i can always kind of remember them you know it's because you remember your history easier so super fast like went to kindergarten switched to a different kindergarten went from k through like third grade to a school, then I went to a different school for third grade, then I went to a different school for fourth, then a different one for fifth and sixth, and then I went to parochial school for seventh and eighth grade. Um, you know, so I was bopping around a lot, and, um, I, you know, for one, you end up kind of destroying and recreating friendship structures very, very quickly, uh, which is good and bad. Um, you also have to deal with very different educational systems and kind of their goals and aspirations and and you're kind of always a bit unknown, you know, to some degree. And um, I, I think it had a big influence. I mean, I wouldn't say all of it was positive, to be honest. I mean, most kids don't like to go through that much change. But, um, but at the same time, I, I'm like everybody else. I mean, I'm, I'm the summation of all my experiences. And so I don't, I don't regret it in the slightest. I think it just had a lot of uh, impact on my ability to kind of change rapidly, show up in settings that I didn't really know before and feel comfortable in them and those kinds of things. So, you know, all of that definitely had an impact. Yeah. Um, changing rapidly. I can see a sales correlation uh, because you have to meet new people and basically sell them on why they should hang out with you. Um, do you feel like your ability to sell is in is, was influenced by the fear of having to make new friendships and would you consider sales an extension of sort of making a friend in a way no i mean in that in that case i'd say no i mean sales was um 
I mean, I mean, the funny thing is, if if anything, all that moving at that period of my life made me more of an introvert. Uh, you know, I probably read more books uh, than I necessarily like jumped in and like made whole new friendships every time I went to a new school. Like, if anything, it made me more studious and more more willing to kind of learn about the world that way. Um, but later in life, on sales, you know, my dad was in sales and had done it his whole life. And again, I didn't really want to follow him. I mean, I. I thought the last thing I wanted, not the last thing, but, you know, I didn't really have any desire to own a business. Like, I was going to go be a college professor. That was kind of my plan in life. And, you know, again, kind of extending kind of the, the, the studying side of things. And um, I ended up owning a business. There's a story there, too, obviously, but, like, for anybody, I, you know, but, uh, but I've loved every minute of it since then. I mean, it's a great place to learn. You're always faced with new challenges. You've always got something that you have to learn. Um, and sales really just came out of me th- thinking I could do it and, um, and ended up having some skill at it and, and having some approaches that I, that really worked for me and have worked, you know, really for the last 20 years. So why didn't you want to follow in your dad's footsteps? Oh, cause my dad's selling was like, um, you know, for, for people who've seen movies like Glenn Glary, Gun Ross, you know, where Alec Baldwin is yelling at them and, you know, always be closing. And um, I mean, to be fair, the movie's a bit dated in some of the references and the, the slang it uses right now. But 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 the, the scene is well known for kind of the like, you know, you're supposed to just be out there cold calling everybody all day of the week. And, you know, there's the winner of the sales contest. The next guy gets steak knives and the next guy gets fired. Uh, you know, and so I looked at his selling and he was exceptional at it. He sold small group health insurance and every week started with no leads and created leads and then went and sold and was a hundred percent commission. I thought this is crazy. I'm not going to be able to pull that off. And then, um, uh, but I, you know, when I left my degree, I did a lot of teaching and I went through, uh, you know, a lot of that and did a lot of teaching in a variety of settings and started a business, whereas I was an independent instructor along with a couple other guys. And, uh, and all of a sudden we had Microsoft as an account and I volunteered to sell Microsoft and thought, well, I looked around at my two other business partners at the time and we all thought, well, you're better at this than the two of us are and go give it a shot. And then I had this really interesting ramp of learning how to sell an enterprise tech company at a time when Microsoft was cool and actually big in a way that, you know, I mean, Microsoft's big now, but Microsoft owned 97% of every computing device on the planet back then. It's hard to imagine. I mean, it's like, it's like if Apple had 97% phone share and Android had three, like there's just, there is nothing like that today. There's nothing. And I'm not, I'm not saying it was a good thing or a bad thing, but there was nothing like the, the dominance that Microsoft had in the land of technology back then. And I don't think we'll ever see it again. And so, you know, we had them as an account during that time period. And it was, um, it was really interesting. I mean, I learned a lot. I learned a lot on how to do account management. I learned a lot on how to like grow an enterprise account. And so, you know, I, I didn't have an easy first step that way. There was no like, you know, hey, spend time cold calling or, sell small accounts. It was like, no, first time I decided to become like a salesperson, I'm going to go sell basically at the time, the tech company that was 4X the size of almost anybody else. Yeah. You know, you mentioned teaching. I started my career as a teacher and so my heart goes out to you. I know what that was like. Um, I feel like I learned a ton 
in those first few years that I translated into my business later, getting kids motivated, all that sort of stuff. Uh, I agree with you on the Glengarry Glen Ross thing. I mean, that that's so intimidating and weird and macho and not my vibe at all. That sort of like right. closer death thing. And, and I always saw sales in that sort of perspective. It, I obviously was wrong, but that was my only frame of reference at the time. So that is scary. Small group health insurance. I have health insurance uh, friends of mine who say no one ever grows up thinking they're going to sell health insurance. <laughs> to a third grader, they're, they're never going to be like, oh, yeah, I want to sell right, health insurance. Right. So unsurprising that that wasn't interesting to you. And then my guest yesterday, with Mike, uh, his first account was Microsoft uh, back in the day. So that was a little bit of uh, serendipity there. Um, I don't have a question in there. I just, I just found a lot of commonality with what you were sharing in my own experience, which is pretty cool. Well, one, so, thing, one thing on that is, is teaching... Um, you know, I, there's certain jobs that I feel like just fill you up in ways, um, I don't even mean emotionally, I just mean like with knowledge of the world and the way people think, um, owning a business is absolutely one of those. Um, I, I've said for years, I wish every college kid could kind of walk out of college and own a business and teach. Because if they did both of those things, I think we all have better human beings wandering around the planet. You know what I mean? And it's not because I believe in entrepreneurship or I believe in like a certain monetary thing or whatever. There's just... If, if you're ultimately responsible for a group of people, whether that's a classroom or a business or whatever, and if you're ultimately responsible for their economic success or their educational success... Um, you cannot really replicate that by having a different job. You, you just can't. And, and at the same time, both jobs force you to learn. It, unless you're just, just dumb and you don't want to move, right? You know, I mean, there's certainly teachers who teach the same thing over and over again and they don't really want to learn. That's kind of rare. There's certainly business owners who kind of don't really want to learn once they've figured out a few things and they just want to crank out money. But like, um, I, I don't think, there's very little that I can think of that that makes you really look at the world a different way than owning a business or teaching in some some particular setting. Yeah, you know, I, the same I think is true of becoming a father or a mother. Um, it's it's one of those cliches that oh, I'll never be the same. You know, once once you have kids, um, that's not everyone's path, obviously. But I felt the same way about that. And then there are so many teachers in my life who. I think would be incredible entrepreneurs, but they're terrified of doing it. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because one of the things that I remember was my dad, you know, back in the day, right? You know, um, there's a lot of teachers who think I could do sales or I could have my own business, you know, and, and yeah, there, there is definitely a cliff, um, you know, there, um, and I could get to parenthood in a sec because I agree with you there too, but like, I think when it comes to, starting a business, that's, that's a healthy fear because, um, let's, let's be real. Like every minute you own a business, um, I put it to people this way. Like when they think about stepping out, I say, are you okay with the fact that at some point you don't have any money? And they go, what do you mean? And I go, no, let me, let me just make it clear. Like at some point, whatever bank account you have, however many employees you have, there's some kind of burn rate, even if it's just your own personal. At some point, this thing runs out of money. Now, that doesn't mean it always runs out of money. Plenty of businesses like last forever. But there's always this, this issue of like, 
how long you have to live. And I don't think that's like a negative way to look at things. I think that's just a very like, that's reality, right? And that's clouded when you work for somebody. But the reality is in that scenario too, you know, the, the gods that are in power can just decide your department's gone someday. You're just abstracted enough from it that it feels like those things won't happen or can't happen. Um, and, and that's much more visible to you as an owner. Like you, you have to, and, and if you are uncomfortable with that or unable to deal with that, yes, then I, I think it's reasonable to be hesitant. All that said, I think if teachers are wired right and they're looking at entrepreneurship in the right way, I do agree that many of the skills that if you're a really good teacher and you're managing your classroom, whether that's adults or kids, and you're setting up kind of educational plans and you're, you're kind of in charge of your own little ship. Um, it's a very entrepreneurial venture. And, I, and maybe that's a little bit rose-colored because I know people would say like, well, you know, curriculum's handed to me and I don't have a lot of freedom. And I'd be like, yeah, I, I guess I get that. I don't, I don't live that. But at the same time, there is, a, there is a fair amount of entrepreneurship in being a teacher. And I think if you're wired right to look at it, yeah, it, it can be an interesting move. Yeah. Uh, I wrote a few things down. Ultimate responsibility, right? That's, it's scary. It's, it's terrifying in a way that I feel like a lot of employees don't fully understand what that's like to deal with someone's livelihood on a daily basis. And chess has taught me a great deal about business because it's it's shown me that sometimes you have to sacrifice the queen and the rook to, to checkmate your opponent. You have to be willing to let go of these high value pieces that you feel like you need to survive, but you don't because there's this ultimate end game. Um, and then being comfortable running out of money. I like that because what it induces in the person you're saying it to is that feeling. And it's that feeling that I feel destroys most would be successful business owners because the second they feel that like I don't have any money anymore, whatever i'm not i'm not a neuroscientist but whatever part of the brain that fight or flight that really kicks in if they haven't mastered that and they let the fear kind of guide them from that right. point forward now they're making poor decisions how do you make a good decision while feeling like you're going to throw up right right i mean you know it, it's just it's just endemic to the the part of owning a business right i mean in and i i think um there was a book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things, and he called it The Night Terrors. You know, he's like, there's just these moments where you realize you're ultimately responsible for a lot of people. And 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 at the same time, that that doesn't mean that um, I want to say this the right way. I mean, you 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 owe the people who report to you many things, but you don't owe them your sanity. You don't owe them your health. You don't owe them your family, right? You know, at some point, even if things are at their darkest, you know, uh, and, and by the way, those folks listening, there's lots of positive things about running a business. We just ended up talking about this. But when things are at their darkest, right, um, you have to remember that. You know, you have to remember that, like, there are many things you don't owe the business. And, and to be honest, in my journey, um, one of the biggest blessings was having one business selling it and getting to start a second one because I I was not like most entrepreneurs owning a business is an ego inflation and deflation vehicle like it just is like I I, I mean I wish I was 
better equipped in my first business, but I think most people are. It's why when they walk up to you, what do most what do most first time entrepreneurs do when they say hello to you? Hi, and you say hi, and they quickly find a way to say, I own a business in some form or whatever, right? Because they're so proud of it, rightly so, I guess, right? And they and their identity is wrapped around this thing. And when I got a chance to have a second business, I got to be able to like, you know, there's some things that aren't wrapped up in this business. And I'm okay with that. And, and, and does that make me insensitive? No, I think it just makes me balanced. I, I think at some point I just have to be able to do that. Um, because to take it all the way back to your point earlier, I think, um, you know, one of those other things that teaches you a lot about life is, is, is having a kid. And it doesn't mean that if you don't have one, you're not, you're not able to learn all these amazing things about life. That's a whole different perspective. You know, my sister doesn't have kids and she has perspectives and experiences that I don't, I don't get to have. And, um, but I will say that for me personally, that's, that's been a huge, a huge part of my life to have the two boys we have. Yeah. I mean, you want to talk about ultimate responsibility, prioritizing and and all those sorts of things. But I agree with you entirely. I mean, each of our paths have this perfection to them. And I like to take a negative word and then add perfect to it. Um, because I think there is such a thing as perfect depression or perfect anger or beautiful sadness or a good cry. You hear these things sometimes. Um, because ultimately, it's, it's I don't know, like, and I, the show always ends up going here at the end of the day. Uh, maybe it's just maybe it's just a show about therapy, Sean. I don't really know what centerizing <laughs> the show is. Maybe it's just therapy. that's fine. I don't, who knows? Um, but the point is that our each of our individual paths are are beautiful. because I mean, you, you you take what you went through as a kid and all the shifting, and I don't know anything about your past other than that. But the the correlations are always there. It's it's just like we're looking at one map. And that's what Einstein said. He said, if you if you had the right perspective, you would realize that all the people that have passed, all your ancestors, um, they're just on the other side of the hill. So literally space time as sort of like geography as opposed to um, linear whatever. Um, so with that, because uh, we are running out of time, I want to make sure that the fine folks know how to reach you, where to reach you, all that stuff. Pitch them, Sean. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'll pitch them. I'll just say that um, you go to CascadeInsights.com and you'll find it, the firm I, I've owned now for the last 16 years or so. And if you're a B2B technology company um, and you've got questions about the market or questions about customers or prospects or even your competitors, um, we're a good person to call. We'll help you get answers to those questions and clear up some of that ambiguity. Beautiful. Ladies and gentlemen, you know the drill. YouTube.com forward slash send it rising. If you're like most folks and you listen after the fact, we appreciate you. If you're listening to us on iTunes, Spotify, or the 10 or so other podcast platforms that we're currently on, we love you and we appreciate you. If you want to see me barefoot longboarding, swing by TikTok.com forward slash send it rising. Um, it's a lot of good times. We're going to give Sean the final word. Word of wisdom, Sean. Um, I would say the most important thing you can do in all times, but even now, especially, read something you disagree with. That's the piece of advice I've been giving people for years. Read something you disagree with, and and it doesn't mean you have to agree with it. As a matter of fact, if all you do is agree with stuff you disagree with, I think you don't have an opinion of your own. Uh, but at the same time, I, I think if all you're doing is reading stuff you agree with, that's not good either. And that's not just business advice, I think that's life advice. And that's something I, regularly do 
You know, the minute I feel like I've read too much from one angle, I jump completely over to the other camp, read a book, read an article, and and I honestly think it's probably the biggest thing I've ever done for my own education is just have a sensor for when I've read too much of one point of view and jump over to the other side. So oh, that's, that's what I give people advice. Oh, good. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, that's a good piece of advice. You should absolutely do that. That's the show for today. We'll see you all next time. Bye for now.